Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Dr. Holly Rogers is one of the developers of KORU, an evidence-based program at Duke University for teaching mindfulness and meditation to college-age students. She is also a co-founder of the Center for KORU Mindfulness, which was established in 2013 to train others to teach KORU. To date, the program is in use on numerous college campuses, including Harvard, Yale, Princeton, MIT, Dartmouth, and several others. It's also used in treatment centers across the country. It is the only evidence-based mindfulness training program for young adults that has been empirically proven to have significant benefits for sleep, perceived stress, and self-compassion. Dr. Rogers works as a psychiatrist at the Student Counseling Center at Duke University, where she helps students integrate the practice of mindfulness into their lives in a meaningful way. She is also a clinical associate in the Department of Psychiatry at Duke University Medical Center. She is co-author with Margaret Mann of Mindfulness for the Next Generation, helping emerging adults manage stress and lead healthier lives. Her latest book, The Mindful 20-Something, is a guide for young adults who wish to learn about using mindfulness and meditation to enhance their journey through emerging adulthood. The book makes the elements of the popular KORU mindfulness program accessible to all young adults struggling with stress. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Spiritual Practice and Mindfulness. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, the host of the channel. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Holly Rogers, about her new book, The Mindful 20-something. Welcome to the show, Holly. I thought maybe we could start the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you were introduced to mindfulness. So I came across mindfulness and meditation myself. Uh, I was just past emerging adulthood. We talk about emerging adults as folks between the ages of about 18 to roughly 30, so late teens to 20s. And I was in a pretty stressful time in my life. I was about 30 years old, and I had been living and working in New Zealand, had a great experience there, but it was time to come back to the United States and finish some of my training. And it was during that transition from working abroad to trying to settle back into working back here in the United States that I I stumbled across mindfulness and meditation. And it it really changed the way I approach so many things in my life and really changed my own way of managing stress, but also of approaching the good and joyful things in life as well. You're in the book, you do a really nice job of explaining how it can change change people's lives. In particular, though, can you say a little bit more about why learning mindfulness 
might be useful for this group of emerging adults at this unique time? So my understanding of this really grew out of my own experience working with emerging adults. I remember I hadn't been working at the Duke Counseling Center for very long when it became really clear to me that many, if not most, of the students who were coming into the counseling center, they were coming in with problems that were related to stress, so stress-related conditions. And it seemed really clear that if they could develop a mindfulness and meditation practice, it would be a really effective approach for them, effective for managing some of the stressors of emerging adulthood. And, you know, just as a brief aside, emerging adults are such uh, interesting individuals. They're such a unique time of life. So folks from about age 18 up through their late 20s, they have more transition and changes than really at any other time of life. So if you think about it, you know, most folks, not everybody, but most folks sort of live with their family. Maybe they move a couple times up until they're 18. And then later in life, you establish a career, you establish a family, you kind of settle down. But in your 20s, you move where you live every year, if not multiple times a year, often. You might go through as many as seven or eight different jobs. You might have at least that many romantic partners. So it's a time of constant change and change and uncertainty more than anything else stress out our human mind. It's just hard to deal with constant change, constant uncertainty. And yet the skills that you learn with a mindfulness practice are exactly the sort of skills that help manage things like stress and change and uncertainty. So that's why when I hadn't been working with these young people for long, I was thinking, you know, if I could just teach them all to meditate, we could really solve a lot of problems. I even even had this brief fantasy about how we were going to be able to close down the counseling center because I was going to teach all the Duke students to have a mindfulness practice. (laughs) Turned out it didn't work quite that way. Well, one of the things I think you pointed out, too, in the book is that emerging adults often find themselves making all these significant decisions for themselves on their own. And so that's, that also, I think, can add to stress. You know, it's, you know, I have to decide whether or not I'm going to choose this option or that option. And, you know, they're no longer supported by the structure of, you know, adults guiding them as closely. Right. And they're big decisions. You know, you're making big decisions that potentially can impact your whole life. And it feels really heavy to people like, you know, what career am I going to pursue? What sort of training am I going to pursue? What's the sort of person I want to partner with? What kind of person do I want to be? What am I really going to care about? What am I going to organize my life around? Like they're big life decisions get made in your 20s. And it can be so hard because, you know, they're just battered by what do their parents think they should do? What do their peers think they should do? Where, where are they going to get more respect? What does social media tell them they should do? 
And it can be really hard to know underneath all the expectations of our culture and our families, what do I want to do? What am I, what are my strengths? What do I care about? What's the path that makes sense for me? And one of the beautiful things about mindfulness is it allows insight and awareness about these really fundamental truths that most people just don't get in touch with. Right, right. Something that I found interesting about the way you introduce mindfulness in the book um, is you you wove in this ability for um, emerging adults to get clearer on their values. And also you do a nice um, piece on sort of developing wisdom. Yeah, it's interesting because I think mindfulness gets sold to us mostly as a stress management practice. And, you know, traditionally, that's not, that that certainly was not the original purpose of the type of meditation uh, that we practice. Um, well, in our program, so the program we developed, the program that the Mindful 20-something, the book goes with, is our program, Koru Mindfulness. That's K-O-R-U. And Koru Mindfulness is a mindfulness and meditation program that was very specifically designed for this developmental stage of emerging adulthood to really take into consideration all these things. And it really specifically takes uh, advantage of the sort of questing, seeking nature of emerging adults and the importance of them discovering their values and starting to listen to some of their own personal truths, because that's, that's where we get the wisdom to make all these big choices they have to make. So we really point them in the direction of insight and awareness and wisdom. And also it will help with their stress because we want to help them be less stressed out also. Maybe you could just walk us through a little bit about the Koru program, about how it works at Duke and what's involved for the students that, that do the take the class. Okay. So, you know, I said that I had this notion I was just going to teach all the Duke students mindfulness and then we'd be done. But what happened, in fact, was it was really hard to get them interested in in learning mindfulness and meditation. I like to say you can... You can bring a horse to water, but you can't make them learn to meditate. <laughs> I could get folks to sign up for meditation classes, but I, I had a really hard time figuring out how to get them to stick with it in a meaningful way so that they learned, they actually learned the practices so they could actually have the impact on their lives. I'd, you know, I'd start out with a full class, and by the next week, half of them would be there, and by the next week, a handful. And by the end of the academic year, I'd maybe taught one or two people a meaningful amount of mindfulness. So I got curious about how could you deliver these important teachings in ways that really captured this population? And when I started looking around, there were a number of mindfulness programs available for kids and teenagers. And then lots and lots of mindfulness books and programs for older adults. And many of the programs for older adults really help adults deal with 
you know, some of the pressures of later life, helping people deal with chronic pain and loss, illness. And those just frankly are not the issues that 20-somethings spend much time thinking about. So I just thought there's got to be another way to do this. And I was really familiar with the age group because I'd been working with them, you know, as a psychiatrist in the counseling center. So I'd spent hours and hours and hours and hours with, you know, college age adults, graduate students. At at some point, um, another psychiatrist who was then a resident at Duke, her name was Margaret Maytan. Margaret approached me and said she'd like to help me teach mindfulness to college students. Margaret had also a background in mindfulness and meditation. She had trained at the Center for Mind-Body Studies in Washington, D.C. And the two of us together got curious about, could you craft a program that would really be different and really engage these college students? So we started trying things, and we tried lots of different things. We tried longer classes and shorter classes. We tried teaching them these skills or that skills and putting them in this order. We tried sitting in circle versus sitting in lines. We we just had fun experimenting. And eventually, after a lot of trial and error, we came up with a program. Like we just hit some tipping point. We went from not being able to keep students in the class to all of a sudden having classes with waiting lists of 80 students who were clamoring to get in. And the students were staying for the whole class and reporting at the end of it, this changed my life. This is the best thing I've ever done at Duke. Uh, So we knew that we had finally kind of come across a structure that was really effective for young adults. So we, we did that for a while. And then eventually I decided, because I was getting lots of queries, to... Uh, help folks at other universities start to use this same model. So we started the Center for Koru Mindfulness, and we now have like close to 700 Koru teachers in a dozen different countries teaching mindfulness to emerging adults all over the all over the place. I think we're in a couple hundred colleges and universities here in the states. So it's really it's really grown and it's it's just proved to be a really helpful model for these 20-somethings. It's interesting because even as you shared that story of how you developed the program, there's sort of a mindfulness lesson there. Um, I think, you know, for the two of you trying to establish this, or even just for yourself alone, you could have encountered um, difficulties along the way and then been reactive and discouraged and decide, this is never going to work. This kind of gets to some of the, how our thinking contributes to stress and how our thinking can limit us. But instead, what you actually just shared was that you got curious. You know, you got curious about what maybe wasn't working well, what you could try to do differently. You experimented, you observed, you sort of started to notice what worked. So it's an interesting little a summary of how you approached it and sort of hung in there and brought it into the program into being is sort of a nice example of how when you become mindful, you can actually accomplish more by by being less, I guess, discouraged or reactive, reactive. So that's kind of a neat little aside. Um, what 
That's an interesting, that's an interesting point, Elizabeth. So I'm often laugh because I spent like five or six years, you know, doing the same thing that wasn't working. And then finally I was like, you know, this isn't working. I wonder if there's another way to do this. And at that point got curious about doing differently. But to your point, I think for all of us who teach mindfulness or write books about mindfulness, you know, the foundation of anything we have to say about this is our own personal practice, right? And if if you don't practice mindfulness yourself and put a fair amount of time into it, it's hard to be an effective teacher of mindfulness. So, uh, and it does really shape the way you approach things. Once you start using this in your life on a regular basis, it does allow you to be less reactive and just to kind of be curious and keep your sense of humor and keep trying things. So you, in the book, you do a very nice job of talking about some of the challenges or obstacles. Can you say a little bit more maybe about the, the program and what you actually settled on that was helping you get wait lists and, and grow the popularity of that program? There were a number of things that it's funny, in hindsight, they seem kind of like no brainers. And, and I think when I tell you, Elizabeth, you may go, duh, why didn't you figure that out immediately? But they really were kind of game changers for the young adults. So for example, you know, you cannot learn mindfulness if you don't practice mindfulness. And folks signing up for a class and then not coming, that's that's not surprising. I mean, college students have so much pressure on them. They have so many things they're expected to do. At one point, it just kind of dawned on us, okay, these are college students. They are used to being told this is the expectation. This is what you have to do. You have to be here. You have to do this. So we shifted to a model where we told people that attendance at all four classes was mandatory. If they wanted to sign up, they had to agree to attend all four classes, and they had to agree to do 10 minutes of mindfulness practice every day. And somewhat surprisingly, that main enrollment goes straight up. And then people would by and large, stick to that commitment, and then they would practice, and then they would feel the benefits, right? So then it became reinforcing. So we've created this really clear structure and and made it mandatory, in air quotes, that they come. Now, we didn't have any way to enforce that. They don't get a grade for it, and, um, you know, it was just setting a very clear frame. So that made a really big difference. Another thing that made a big difference is thinking about what is the lowest effective dose of mindfulness for these young people. You know, the gold standard of mindfulness training in this country is John Kabat-Zinn's fabulous mindfulness-based stress reduction program. It's just a wonderful program. It's an eight-week-long program. Each week, there are two-and-a-half-hour classes. And the students in it, the participants, are asked to meditate 30 to 45 minutes a day. And we found college students just absolutely were not going to do that. Like, they are not going to go to class that long. They're not going to practice that much, and they'll just drop out. So we started trying to squish it down to figure out, well, what is, you know, what is really the amount that they, they have to do to get benefit from it, but not much beyond that? And we ended up figuring out that we could do four weeks of 75-minute classes, 
with 10 minutes a day of practice. And we did a, we did a really solid research study, a randomized controlled trial of Coru, and we're able to show that with that amount of teaching and practice, they really had significant improvement in sleep, levels of stress, self-compassion, and mindfulness. So we accepted the fact that they have busy schedules, and we tried to figure out how we could work with that. And, you know, that's, that's the, way, the reason the program is structured the way it is structured. And then finally, we just tried teaching them different things. What we found is people show up the first day. They sign up and show up because they are stressed out. And if we don't offer them something that helps them manage what they're dealing with, if they don't walk out of the first class feeling some relief, then it'd be really reasonable for them not to make the time to come back. So we we took their feedback. The skills that were most helpful for calming them are a couple different breathing skills. And they kept saying, if we put those skills very first, it was very reinforcing and they were much more likely to come to the second class. Um, so thinking about what we taught them and the order in which we taught them seemed to be really important to making a program that worked for them. Now, do, does the program require them to um, keep a log, keep some sort of diary of, of their the program does require them to keep a log, and that actually was initially a really important piece of it. It still is. We started out handing out paper logs that they were required to complete, logging their meditation time, reflecting on their meditation time, and writing down every, every day two things they were grateful for. And that seemed really effective. We'd have the students bring that log back. And that really contributed to their practice and the structure of it. However, there were some limitations of the paper log. The most, I think, salient limitation of it was people would, you know, it's only a four-week curriculum. So we'd hand them a log. They'd bring it back the second class. We'd write uh, coaching comments on the reflections, hand them back the third class. They weren't really getting individual feedback from us until almost the end of the four weeks. So students then started asking, is there any way we could put this log on our phone? Which at first I just rolled my eyes and said, oh, please don't ask me this question. But we actually created a Koru app. And next week is coming out the second version of the Koru app. And it is fabulous. And I'm so excited about it. It is. It's, uh, it's fabulous. I mean, I looked at it and I could see myself using it. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's great. It keeps track of your hours and your, the day. I mean, you have all those milestones that you can record. It's, it's perfect. Well, the new version, which is about to be out uh, August 30th is even more perfect. And a few things that we've added is the potential for students to see the gratitudes of all their classmates anonymously and also together work to grow a community garden that is watered every time anyone in the class puts in minutes of meditation. But the most important thing about the app and the log is that when a student logs their daily meditation, 
it shows up on my teacher dashboard so I can immediately coach them and mentor them and guide them and respond to it. And then it shows up on their app, my comments. So for example, the most common by far reflection for students that first week is, this is too hard. I can't sit still. My mind is too busy. I can't do this. Like there's all these really normal experiences of, you know, it's really hard to sit still and watch your breath. And of course it is. And I can immediately say, hey, beautiful noticing. Look at the way you're noticing how your mind feels, how your body feels. You're doing it exactly right. Keep with it. Let's try it again tomorrow. Let me know how it goes. And because we now have this really beautiful app that engages the student, we can coach them all along the way. So they get this you know, in-person class with a relational teacher. They have their classmates with them. And then they also are getting coached regularly by their app, through their app. And it's a really unique system. And I'm really excited about the new app because it's so beautiful. I think that's, you know, I think that's really, really great and can really support anybody who's trying to get this going because it is, it is hard. And, you know, you, you also talk about some of the, the things you can encounter, you know, sleepiness and restlessness. And um, I think what's kind of reassuring is that early on in the book, you, you talk about how this is a, it seems simple, but it is really difficult and that we all have an internal ability, that it's, it's something we can develop with practice. And can you talk about how the practice part, because I know there are times when I sit and meditate and all I do is plan, plan, think about all the things I'm going to do when I'm done meditating and I'm in planning mode and I feel very restless. And over time, I've learned to just continue and say, well, this will be a restless meditation. And I just practice accepting that my mind is busy today. And I think there's a, there's a way that even doing that is practicing. Even when I don't feel like I'm meditating right, I'm still practicing. And I'm, and over time I have less and less frustrating experiences where I can't settle. Right. Everyone has this idea that meditation is going to be like immediately peaceful and easy and you know, your experience is just like my experience and everyone else's experience. It's not, it's not really like that. And the, the purpose of the practice is to help us get comfortable with the idea that things are constantly changing and we have the capacity to sort of sit with that and hold that and be curious about it and not need to control everything all the time. And there's not just one right way to do things. And our minds wander. And can that be interesting instead of frustrating, right? I too, you know, often I'm sitting and meditating and I'm just planning away. And, you know, the more I can just watch my mind do that and kind of smile at myself and all my busy plans, uh, the more I'm really present and accepting of what's going on in this moment. And so I think the challenge for teaching new meditators is they have such clear ideas about what's the right way to do it. They think that they're supposed to be able to, you know, quiet their mind or stop their thinking. 
we start every Koru program with two foundational metaphors that are just like so essential to learning mindfulness and so essential to, to helping these young people not just give up. So the first one is about practice, like you mentioned, Elizabeth, and we use a weightlifting metaphor. It's a really commonly used metaphor with meditation teachers. We certainly aren't the only ones to use it. It is, however, a metaphor that young adults really identify with because they are tend to be really focused on working out, being concerned about fitness. So we talk about how you use you practice mindfulness to build your mindfulness muscle in the same way you practice that you have to lift weights to get physically stronger. And, you know, if I asked you to bench press a hundred pounds, you might just, you know, say, well, I can't do that. But you would know that you could learn to do that. And then if you practiced and if you started with lighter weights and worked your way up, you could get better and better at it. And eventually you'd be strong enough to do that. Mindfulness is exactly the same. At first, you just can't do it. But for some reason, people think if they can't do it at first, that means they'll never be able to do it. And so we like the metaphor of weightlifting because it's just like weightlifting. Just because you can't do it at first doesn't mean that with practice, you're not going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. We talk about the lightweight of mindfulness meditation being, you know, two or three minutes seated in a quiet space where you get to practice focusing your awareness. And the 100-pound weight of mindfulness is you're in a fight with your roommate and you're kind of losing it and you remember to take a deep breath, drop into your body sensations and not react. But you're not going to be able to do that unless you've lifted a lot of lighter weights. So that's why we get you to practice for 10 minutes a day. So you're ready for the heavy lifting if you fail a class or get in a fight with your girlfriend or, you know, whatever happens. And then the other metaphor is related to how quickly people get frustrated by their busy minds. That's like the number one thing we hear. I can't meditate. My mind's too busy. I can't stop my thinking. So we use the river metaphor. We talk about how with meditation, we're getting really familiar with our river of thoughts. Our thoughts are just flowing, flowing, flowing. They're like a river that never stops. We're not trying to stop the river. We're not trying to dam the river. We're just learning to sit on the bank and watch the thoughts flow. And of course, we fall in and get pulled downstream, but at any moment, you can hop back on the bank and begin to watch your thoughts again. And really, with meditation practice, what you're doing is falling in, climbing out, falling in, climbing out. You're practicing climbing back into the present moment, climbing back into a place of being aware of what your thoughts and feelings and physical sensations are doing. And there's no expectation that you're just going to be able to sit on the bank forever and watch the river flow. But as you practice, you find you sit on the bank a little bit longer. And when you fall in, you climb out a little bit faster. And sometimes your river starts to slow down a little bit. But the goal is not to stop thoughts. And if you think it is, you're going to be so frustrated at first. Do students ever ask you, how, how will I know if I'm, if I'm getting stronger or if the practice is... How, how do they ever wonder like what they're supposed to be looking for or how they could measure? Oh yeah. I get some version of that question all the time. You know, it's basically some version. Am I, am I doing it right? <laughs> am I making progress? 
And I love those questions because they really help, uh, they help me teach towards these kind of sort of fundamental uh, teaching points about mindfulness is that this, um, you know, we are all always wanting to feel like we're figuring it out or we're doing it right or we're making progress. And to some degree, it's our need to always be getting it right and making progress that produces some of the stress we're constantly dealing with. So if all you do is notice that you're worried about getting it right, then you're doing it perfectly right. If all you do is notice that you're really wanting to get better at it, noticing that striving to be better and being really accepting of that, that's really the measure of if your practice is progressing. The one thing I tell people all the time is that if you just stick with it, you feel, you know, you feel these changes in yourself. And that's how you know that the time you're putting into this is starting to impact the way you're approaching things. It's nice. I think a little as an adjunct to the meditation I think it's it's interesting you talked also about um, getting students to take an activity they do every day, whether it's brushing their teeth or making their bed or I think you I think you share a story about washing the dishes um, and taking something and noticing how you think about the task that you have and then how you feel about it and trying to take a, you know, a daily task and turn it into a mindfulness activity where maybe you could say a little bit more about that, about how that, how that works, how being more present can take something like doing the dishes and make it turn the experience around. So when we were thinking about, we were developing Koru and thinking about what was essential you know, we were, you know, we definitely wanted people to spend at least some time each day sort of practicing meditation. But we're also aware that you don't practice mindfulness for the purpose of getting really good at sitting still for 10 minutes. Like that's not really the purpose. The purpose is for you to start infuse present moment awareness into your whole day. So we added an additional requirement that each day our students pick something that they do every day, like washing their hands or brushing their teeth, making their bed. Okay, they probably don't do that every day. <laughs> what I mean, and and do it with full awareness and like bring that challenge to it. So really notice what are you feeling? What are the physical sensations involved in washing your hand? What happens if you pay attention to those physical sensations? instead of not even noticing you're washing your hands because all you're doing is worrying about this next exam you have coming up and all these things you have to do. So we really want to help people integrate, you know, pausing, being present for all the moments of their lives into their daily life because that's when it really starts to impact them. And, you know, we hear students tell stories about how that shift is happening for them. Like they'll come in and they'll say, you know, I got my exam back. I didn't make the grade. 
I thought I was going to make. I started to get really panicky about it. And then I just sat down on the steps in front of the chapel in the sunshine, and I just felt the sun on my face for a couple minutes. And somehow that changed how I was feeling about it. So, you know, that's like such a beautiful example of them remembering to bring awareness into the moment when they're, you know, starting to feel stressed. And so we really try to get them to practice that by bringing mindfulness into their daily activities. The other thing we do is we ask them to write down two things they're grateful for every day. Gratitude is such a fabulous mindfulness practice. And I I don't think everyone always thinks about it like that, but you know, I'm sure you know, Elizabeth, there's so much written and talk that we talk about this is we have this negative cognitive bias. Like we're really good at noticing the problems. We're really good at noticing difficulties. And so our minds really naturally go to the problems, the difficulties, the things we don't like, the things that went wrong. So it's a mindfulness practice to intentionally take your awareness, gather your awareness and place it on aspects of your day that are positive or uplifting things you can be grateful for. So we ask people to intentionally place their awareness and notice two things, write them down uh, that happened to them today or they noticed today that they could feel gratitude for. And it could be something as simple as, uh, you know, the blue sky. I enjoyed my coffee. Just simple things. But if we remember to pay attention to some of the simple pleasures in our life, it kind of balances the way our mind wants to usually just think about the difficulties. So we're trying to help people create more balance in their awareness. So we're aware of our problems, but we're also aware of our blessings. And life is rich and interesting and changing. Good things happen. Rough things happen. And the more we can be aware and present and accepting, the more joyful our lives can be. That's nice. And, and I think it's nice that the app actually has an area for people to record that too. So that's a nice little sort of cues you to um, write down the two things you can be sort of grateful for. Yeah. The gratitude gratitude part, um, you also do a whole section on sort of happiness and how, and I think you're right. I think people think mindfulness and meditation can you know, kind of solve problems and um, make you less stressed. And it's, I do think it's really more of an adjustment to how you, how you respond to, to problems and what you pay attention to. And so this idea of gratitude and what we pay attention to, I think the, the saying is whatever we pay attention to tends to grow or increase. Right. Right. Yeah. And you know, the idea of happiness, like, Happiness is a practice. You know, we have to cultivate happiness. And I think many of us don't really understand that. We feel like if we get lucky and things go our way, we'll be happy. That's not really, you know, that's not really how life rolls. All of us will have difficulties and all of us will have good moments. And how do we relate to our lives in a way that really allows us to cultivate feelings like gratitude and compassion and patience that that those are the feelings that then all add up to happiness right and it it often has to do with how we approach the difficulties that we're all going to experience in our lives 
you know, as you were talking, I was thinking of early in the book, you sort of addressed this idea that I will be happy as soon as I finish this or get that or reach this point. That sort of, I think you say it's sort of, you talk about mindfulness as a game changer, as a way to kind of switch us into being present instead of always waiting for life to start after something happens. Right. And, you know, I think as humans, we're all vulnerable to that way of thinking. I mean, I think we all do that. But if you think about the life of college and graduate students in particular, like their lives are really set up that way. They live their lives like from this exam to this exam to this semester. And then after this semester, and then when I finish this year, and then when I finish this program, and meanwhile, their lives are just going by, you know, and every single day has potential to be interesting or to learn something new, to engage with in a way that could be really meaningful. And if we feel like we're going to wait to cultivate meaning or interest or happiness until we finish this program or that program, our lives just go by. And, you know, it never ends. Like you get out of, you finish undergrad and then you go to grad school and then you finish that. I'll be happy when I find a job. People are already thinking about when they retire. <laughs> you know, it's just like our, our lives are happening right now, right this moment. And can we be engaged with that? Can we do something meaningful? Can we enhance our capacity to feel compassion and connected to other individuals? So, you know, there's a, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a, there's a quote from the Buddha that I like to share with students because I think it's I think it really conveys something interesting about the practice of meditation. And of course I don't know if I have this quote exactly right, but there's a quote from the Buddha that essentially is the purpose of our practice is to abandon ill will and hatred and abide with a mind compassionate for the welfare of all living beings. And I think that is so beautiful. And I think that, you know, in our culture, mindfulness is often sold as a way to manage your stress, to enhance your performance, to get better at doing whatever it is you do. And I think those are all, you know, those are all valid things and perfectly reasonable reasons to take up a practice. And yet, you know, the real purpose of the practice is, is to help shift us all towards greater compassion towards ourselves and towards others and to, to live that way. It's kind of beautiful to think about. Hmm. It is, it is. And then that brings up the idea that, or the questions about what mindfulness is and whether or not it's somehow religious. Right. Yeah. I get that question a lot too. And what if someone um, is already of a certain religion? Is this going to conflict? Right. Yeah. You know, I think, um, so these secular mindfulness practices like Koru, like mindfulness-based stress reduction, they, they are not attached to any, uh, religious requirement or spiritual requirement. 
However, I think it's really important to acknowledge that their roots, uh, their spiritual roots come from Buddhism. And, um, you know, it's it's important to not kind of misappropriate the teachings of mindfulness as if us white people in America develop this brilliant stress management program. You know, these, these are practices that come from these other ancient practices. However, mindfulness is really just being aware, non-judgmentally of your present moment experience. And I have had students from Christian backgrounds and Muslim backgrounds and Hindu backgrounds. And, and all of them find that whatever their prayer practice or spiritual practice is, this ability to be so present enhances it. And people talk about how their prayer practice has become much more spiritual and meaningful to them since they've incorporated this present moment awareness into it. Um, so there's, you know, there's this possibility of becoming more deeply engaged in your spiritual practice, whatever it is, by developing this skill of open, non-judgmental awareness. I think that's nice because I, I think, like you said, it can actually make you more present uh, for the aspects of your life that, you know, are directed by any particular type of faith. That's really nice. Um, what the things that I just wanted to point out too is that you do incorporate, even as you're talking about the, the benefits to the sort of quality of life and the kind of quality of character and just being more generous and compassionate, you do you do weave in the science and you have this nice little sections on science notes where you do present uh, research and, and document the, the benefits and talk about the the changes in some, some ways, measurable changes that they've been able to record in the brain in terms of like the, the amygdala and um, other areas of the brain. And I think that actually works nicely in this book because of the, some of the skepticism that you talk about for this age group. Like before I invest my limited amount of time, I want to know that it's, that it's going to sort of be worth it. And yet you do a nice job of saying this is all true when you present the information, but the overarching goal is to just be able to, I mean, you start with the first chapter, say, you know, live your life. This is your life. Don't miss it. So I just, um, I guess I'm just pointing out for listeners, it's a nice, you know, you, you talk about, one of the goals is to find seek balance between difficulty in life and trying to enjoy life. And the, the book is a very balanced book in terms of addressing um, both of those. Well, and I am glad you are bringing up the science part because I, um, you know, for me, I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a medically trained person. The science part is really important to me. Like I, I'm really interested in the neuroscience of mindfulness and there's been so much research on it, literally thousands of studies showing the way these practices can in, you know, enhance the functioning of, you know, our stress management systems in our brain. Like there are neurobiological changes in the direction of better mood regulation 
improved academic performance, you know, you can really see in the brain the changes that happen as a result of doing these attention practices, this attention training. So I think that's really cool. And I think 20-somethings tend to be pretty darn skeptical, and it's really helpful for them to understand some of the science behind these practices. Definitely. For adults, too, I would say, you know, I think there's a lot of adults who feel like if this is going to be, this will be worth my time if I know there's some scientific proof that, you know, and I think the studies that show sleep quality can improve and all kinds of things like that are, are also really helpful. And, you know, I think it's really normal for people to be skeptical about it. And and certainly not everybody is going to want to try these practices. But, you know, one of the things we say to students, like, core is only four weeks long. It's just four weeks. We're asking you to practice 10 minutes a day. See if you can be open and curious. Practice it. Just do it. See what happens. If at the end of four weeks you're like, yeah, I told you, this is a dumb waste of my time. Fine. And if at the end of four weeks, you're like, okay, that was actually really helpful. I'm going to keep doing it. Well, that's great too. But see if you can just be open-minded and try it. And I think that's true for all of us. You know, maybe it'll work for you. Maybe it won't, but you're never going to know unless you put a little time in and see. No, that's nice. And I, I think it's it's wonderful that you're, you incorporate into the book um, a lot of different vignettes from students that have done the program and, and shared with you little changes and things that they've noticed that um, ways that they've responded differently as a result of it. Yeah. You know, that, to be honest, that's what has kept me going through all of this is just over and over hearing students just tell me beautiful, amazing stories about, you know, sometimes it's just simple little changes they make insights that they have. And this just sense that this really makes such a big difference for them in how they're managing their stress, how they're, you know, interacting with their friends, uh, how they're feeling about themselves. There's so much self-criticism these days. And if, if I can help folks just kind of lighten up on themselves a little bit, it, it can make a really big difference for them. So it really is the students that they're so fabulous and so open and uh, they share these discoveries that they make. And it's just really delightful. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I was going to ask you if there was anything sort of new you wanted to share with us. And you've already kind of given us a heads up that the, the a new version of the app will be, will be available soon. So that's exciting. Is there anything else that you're working on or anything else you wanted to emphasize to listeners? You know, I guess just the thing that I like to emphasize is that, uh, you know, we all have opportunities to try new things and try and shift our life in a direction of greater uh, satisfaction and meaning. And, you know, these practices, they're pretty simple and it's worth trying. And there are books like mine and programs like Koru. There are other books or other programs. Uh, but I just really encourage people to be open-minded and see what it's like to relate to your experience a little different, this present moment, non-judgmental, open awareness. No, that's great. That's great. I think you're right. I mean, it doesn't, 
require any special equipment or any particular previous experience, you can just jump in and give it a try. I think it's, yeah, I think that's, I think that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking time today um, to talk with me and to share about your book. Um, again, it's the mindful 20 something and it's, you can buy it on Amazon. You can also go to the korumindfulness.org where you will um, see some, I think you have some pre-recorded guided meditations available. For people who are interested in learning to teach Koru, our website is a great source of information about training to teach Koru, and we're always uh, expanding our teacher training pool. And then we also are starting a new website as the app comes out that's just for students and students who are wanting to learn mindfulness, wanting to find a Koru class near them, and that is student.korumindfulness.org. Great, great. And I, as I said, I had a chance to look at the app and look at the guided med- and, and this is on the side. I think one of the things that's unique about your book as well is the type of guided meditations. You you have a great one for if you need to like rev up and you know overcome sleepiness, right. and, which is which is kind of unique. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We try to have a meditation for all the different uh, situations young adults encounter. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that one. That was great. So thank you so much. And thanks for all the the time and effort you put into getting your program going and sharing it with with others. I hope it continues to to grow and spread. Great. Well, thanks for having me on today. I enjoyed visiting with you. 